0: Tonight we come to Matthew chapter 14, and what I find very significant about this chapter is after the beginning portion, where it describes us the story of John the Baptist and what happened to him and how he died, uh, then we have two remarkable miracles where Jesus displays his authority over nature, and uh, we'll get into those later on in this chapter. First of all, let's discuss this whole matter with uh, Herod and John the Baptist, beginning now, Matthew chapter 14, starting at verse 1. At that time, Herod the tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. The fame and report of Jesus spread around the region of Galilee, as you well might expect that it would. And eventually, it would come to the ears of the ruler of that region. And that would be this man known as Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this was not King Herod. He was not officially a king. Here, he is given the Greek title of Tetrarch. Now, literally, a Tetrarch is a ruler of a fourth part. If you were to divide a dominion into four parts and put one man in rulership over one of those four parts, he would literally be a Tetrarch. But by the time it was used in Jesus' day, it was used quite generally of any sort of sub-ruler of a country. The bottom line is just this, a Tetrarch was lower than a king. Now, Herod, also here known as Herod Antipas, he very much wanted to be known as a king, but he was not known as a king, and it was desire to receive that title that later on got him into trouble in life. But this man was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, who ruled over Judea and Jerusalem and the Galilee, ruled over this whole area in the time when Jesus was born, that Herod. Herod the Great, who remodeled the temple and was a man of great achievement and great terror, he had three sons, and this was one of these three sons. Uh, Another son was named Philip, who ruled to the north, and another son was known as Archelaus, and he ruled to the south. Well, what Herod the Tetrarch thought when he heard about Jesus and his tremendous ministry in the region of Galilee was he said, this man is John the Baptist, risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work through him. Now, in a moment, Matthew is going to explain to us why this would trouble Herod so much. The bottom line is just this, and I hope I'm not spoiling the story for you by telling you this, but Herod was responsible for the death of John the Baptist, and in his tortured conscience, he believed that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected and doing these great miracles. And if you really believed that, you would be terrified, would you not? Wouldn't you be terrified if the man that you unjustly put to death, you thought he was back alive and doing tremendous miracles? You, You would believe that it would only be a matter of time until he came and did some of that miraculous power against you. By the way, one commentator, a guy named William Barclay, he cites the ancient Christian writer Origen who said that Jesus and John the Baptist closely resembled one another in their physical appearance. Now, I can't say we know that for true from the Bible, but this ancient Christian writer Origen said this, And if this were true, it would give even more reason for Herod Antipas to believe that Jesus was John the Baptist, come back from the dead. You can just imagine Herod saying, well, tell me about this Jesus fellow. And one of his assistants says, well, you know, he looks an awful lot like John the Baptist. And that would bother him a great deal, of course. Well, now starting at verse three, we hear the sad story of what happened to John the Baptist, starting at verse three. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was very sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent And had John the Baptist beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. Now please remember, all this takes place before verses 1 and 2, right? This is all given by way of explanation, telling us why Herod was terrified when he heard that Jesus was working miracles and he associated Jesus with John the Baptist. Well, why did John the Baptist get in trouble with Herod Antipas? It's because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her, meaning Herodias, this woman who was the second wife. You you see, uh, he imprisoned John, for the bold rebuke that john had made of his sin yet herod did not immediately kill him why because he feared the multitude now why would john be so concerned to speak out against herod's marriage well really for two reasons first of all herod had illegally divorced his pre- his first wife his previous wife illegally divorced her she was the daughter of a neighboring king And uh, he became displeased with her. And so he illegally divorced his first wife. Then he seduced and illegally married Herodias, who was actually the wife of his brother, Philip. And this was a big scandal. It was known to everybody. And John the Baptist was bold enough to speak out against this scandal. Now, by the way, this woman, Herodias... Uh, Adam Clark says about her that this infamous woman was the daughter of Aristobulus and Bernice and granddaughter of Herod the Great. Her first marriage was with Herod Philip, her uncle, by whom she had had Salome, the daughter mentioned here. Sometime after, she left her husband and then lived publicly with Herod Antipas. Now, What did John the Baptist do? He spoke out against this. And by the way, there is the suggestion here that John the Baptist did this repeatedly. In verse 4, where it says, For John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. The idea there in the ancient Greek grammar, it isn't certain, but it is suggestive of the idea that John the Baptist did this repeatedly. And now, why didn't he do worse to this man because it says very plainly that he feared the multitude. Now, in this sense, Herod is very much like a lot of people today in that they fear the opinion of people before they fear God. You think about it. The only thing that kept Herod from even greater wickedness was the fear of man. He was afraid that the people who regarded John as a great prophet that they would come against him. But you have to say this. Herod seemed to fear his wife Herodias even more than he feared the multitude. Because what did he do? He arrested John based purely on the evidence, or purely on the prompting, I should say, of Herodias. I I like what this old Puritan commentator, uh, John Trapp, says about this. He He says, of Herodias over Herod. It says, she ruled him at her pleasure as Jezebel did Ahab. But it never goes well when the hen crows. I like that saying from John Trapp. It never goes well when the hen crows. Well, in any regard, you see what happens following in the verses. It says there that the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. And you can just sort of picture this whole scene, right? Herodias' daughter shamelessly dances before Herod and the friends, winning favor in a very special request. Now, we know here that in the text, verse 11 specifically, The daughter of Herodias is described as a girl. Now, don't think from that that she was a cute little girl. Girl was a term there. The precise Greek word could be used of someone of a marriable age. She was at least a teenager at this time. And the dancing of a mere girl would have been no entertainment to these partiers. The very treat in it all lay in the fact that there was something indecent in her dance. William Barclay says that the dances in which these girls danced were suggestive and immoral. For a royal princess to dance in public at all was an amazing thing. And so in response to this, Herod, probably drunk uh, there with all the guys, he promises her anything that she wants. And what does she ask for? Instructed by her mother, she said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. Now, this request of Herodias shows that she had planned to do this for some time. She knew her husband, she knew the situation, and she knew that she could get what she wanted this way. And by the way, might I say that she was shrewd enough to demand that it be done immediately while the guests were still there at the party, right? That was an essential part of the request, that it has to be done now before, Herod, you sober up before you're not under the influence of your friends around there who would demand that you do this, while you're still uh, excited over the voluptuous dance. Even though Herod regrets this, it says right there in the text, verse 9, that the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded that the head be given to her. Herod was afraid to go against his wife. He was afraid to lose face before his friends. And therefore, he did something, you should say here, that he knew was wrong. Don't you see this in the text here? It's very fascinating. Herod knew what he was doing was wrong. There's no question about it. Nevertheless, he said, I made an oath to do it, therefore I must do it. Now, friends, do you see the real logic or the the lack of logic in that? I made a promise to do something evil, therefore I must fulfill the promise. No! Uh, Rash promises or even oaths are no excuse for doing something wrong. The the promise is null, it's void, because no man has a right to promise to do something wrong. And what's very interesting here is Herod, like a lot of weak men, he feared to be seen as weak. And therefore, he goes through and he fulfills this promise. And you can just see it. The whole tone of the section is that there it is, right there in front of the whole crowd of banqueting partiers, there is the actual head of John the Baptist being brought on a platter. It's a gruesome scene. But Herodias was filled with joy. She looked at the mouth of John the Baptist and she said, that mouth is never going to speak against me again. She looked at the eyes of John the Baptist and said, those eyes are never going to look through me and through my sin ever, ever again. Now, you should think about this. Herod and Herodias ended up having a terrible end. In order to take his brother's wife, Herodias, Herod first put away his first wife, who was a princess from a neighboring kingdom to the east. Now, her father, the father of his first wife, was so offended that he came against Herod with an army and defeated him in battle. Then his brother Agrippa accused him of treason against Rome and eventually he was banished into the distant Roman province of Gaul and in Gaul, Herod and Herodias committed suicide. That was their end. Well, what happened though with John? It says in verse 12, then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. I like a little comment that Charles Spurgeon made on verse 12. I found it fascinating because I didn't see it before. He says, it's important to notice that it doesn't say that they buried John. Because they couldn't bury John. John lived on and nobody could stop him. What does it say they buried? They buried his body. The real John was not there. The real John had gone on to a greater reward. So, because of all this, verse 13, When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. Now, again, I want you to understand, Jesus did not leave the area because of cowardice. In other words, he hears the news that Herod Antipas is against him, that he fears that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead. And when Jesus hears about this, when he hears about the death of John the Baptist, he says, I have to leave the region. But again, he doesn't do this out of cowardice, I would say, but instead out of an understanding of the father's timing and prophetic timing. So what happened? When the multitudes heard about it, they followed him on but now don't you think it's interesting jesus could escape the potential violence of herod but he couldn't escape the attention of the multitudes he could not be hidden from the people and the religious leaders oppose jesus the political leaders now oppose jesus but he's still popular with the multitudes the uh, the multitudes are seeking after jesus as strongly as ever verse 14 And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, Jesus, at this point, you would have the feeling that he just wants to be away from the crowds, right? Why won't you leave me alone? But that's not Jesus' attitude at all. Instead, verse 14 tells us that he was moved with compassion for them. The great compassion of Jesus that prompted him to heal the multitude also moved upon him to provide for their needs of food. And he did this all the way till evening. His gracious compassion for the demanding crowds was genuinely remarkable. And Jesus says to the disciples, well, it's time to give them something to eat. What should we give them? Don't you notice that Jesus seems to have a lot more compassion for the multitudes than his disciples did? You know, Jesus and the disciples could have made a lot of legitimate excuses. Well, this isn't the right place to feed them. This isn't the right time that the people can take care of themselves. Indeed, you should know that there was no expectation that Jesus would feed this multitude. None whatsoever. These were people who were used to skipping meals, and they certainly expected nothing. Yet nevertheless, Jesus had compassion on them and wanted to minister to their needs. So what did he do? Well, first he told the disciples, you give them something to eat. Now, he gave them, previous in his ministry, a pattern or, a, or a, uh, a previous occasion that should have given them the faith to expect that he would do this. You know, one of the first miracles that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples was the miracle of creating water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Now, you know what? The one who did that conceivably could very well provide bread for a multitude as well. Don't you think that Jesus is almost sort of prompting the disciples to respond back with the statement, Jesus, you need to do this. We have nothing, but Jesus, you can do this. And I think it's fascinating that both Jesus and the disciples were aware of the great multitude and they were aware of their needs But it was the compassion of Jesus and his awareness of the power of God that led him to go out to do something about meeting the needs of this multitude. You know, if you want to make the analogy today between spiritual bread and and actual bread, and think about it, how it relates to this particular story here. You think about it, there are multitudes today, they are hungry for spiritual bread. And who has anything that they're going to give to them? You know, the people are hungry and the empty religionist offers them some ceremony or empty words that can never satisfy them. The the, the people are hungry and the atheists and the skeptics try to convince them that they're not hungry at all. The, the people are hungry and the religious showman or entertainer, or entertainer gives them video and special lighting and cutting edge music. The people are hungry, and the spiritual entertainer gives them loud, fast action, so loud and so fast that they don't have a moment to think. People are hungry, but who's going to give them the bread of life? Well, Jesus is going to discuss this with the disciples. Look now at verse 17. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Now, by the way, I want you to notice something. First of all, what we notice in verse 17 is that uh, when Jesus asked them, what do you guys have? What can you provide? What did they have? Five loaves and two fish. Now, we know from John chapter 6, by the way, this is one of the few miracles in the whole ministry of Jesus that is faithfully recorded in all four Gospels. I think that's significant. Anyway, In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, where it records this miracle, it tells us where they got these five loaves and two fish, right? Did they get it just from among themselves? No, there was a little boy who had this. Now, what does this tell you? Doesn't it tell you that the disciples themselves traveled very light? They did not bring with them large resources of food. And and really, this is much to the credit of the disciples. It seems that the disciples really were living by faith, just trusting from meal to meal that Jesus was going to provide and that they were going to see God provide for them. Because the little that they received to feed this multitude didn't even come from themselves. Anyway, verse 17, We have only here uh, five loaves and two fish. He said to them, Bring them here to me, Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. Now notice this. There they are. Jesus says, okay, give me the five loaves and the two fish. That's enough. I can do something with this, Jesus thinks. And then what did he do? He commands the multitude to sit down on the grass. I want you to understand that there is the very strong suggestion here that this is more than Jesus just putting food in their stomachs. If it was really all about just putting food in their stomachs, they could have eaten standing up. But the fact that Jesus ordered them, he made them sit down, hey, take it easy. Let's enjoy a meal together. It really has the idea that Jesus is promoting a banquet-like atmosphere here. He wants this to be something wonderful for the people, not just merely filling their stomach. Again, I like what Spurgeon said at this point. He said, what a feast this was. Christ for the master of the feast, apostles for butlers, thousands for numbers, and miracles for supplies. And it was. So how did Jesus begin it all? Notice it says, looking up to heaven, he blessed. Isn't that funny? Five loaves, two fishes. Now, might I make this clear too? The loaves that he had were little loaves. Listen, uh, there's a very kind man in the church and very often he'll bring to the Bible college these enormous loaves of bread that are just incredibly hardy and heavy and can feed a lot of people. If Jesus had five loaves of those huge bread, I am telling you, he could have fed at least a hundred people out of them. It would have been not so great a miracle. But when he talks five loaves of bread, he's speaking up actually fairly small pieces of bread, like a large piece of flat bread is what we would call it. Then the fish, the fish weren't huge fish, you know, that somebody would carry around, or like a big shark or a swordfish that somebody pulls out of the the ocean. Not at all. These fish were probably small, sardine-like fish. So the more you know about what these five loaves and two fishes were, you realize what a humble meal this was. This was basically enough for one person, right? This one little boy. This was a proper meal for one person. And Jesus is there holding a proper meal for one person with more than 5,000 people to feed. And what does he do? He thanks God, his Father, for what he has. You know, I always think that's a beautiful place to start. Always to thank God for what you do have. And he may have prayed a very familiar Jewish prayer before the meal. This is what he may have prayed. Blessed art thou, Jehovah our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. That was a very traditional Jewish prayer to pray before a meal, to thank God for the food that you're about to partake of. And so what did he do? He blessed, he broke, and he gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. Isn't it interesting? Jesus would break off a piece of bread... And seemingly just break off and keep breaking off and keep breaking off and keep breaking off, and then the same thing with the with the uh uh the fish here break a fish in half here's a fish here's a half a fish, and it just kept multiplying. It was an obviously dramatic, miraculous provision of food, and this miracle displays jesus' total authority over creation. listen. If, if the power to create this much food is in your hand, why not just send the bread out dancing over the air to the individual people? But Jesus didn't want to do that. Well, why not just clap your hands and the whole meal appears right before each person as they sit? But Jesus had no interest in doing that. He wanted to use the hands of the disciples even within this miracle. He could have done it directly, but he wanted to use the disciples. Can I say this as well? Nobody knew where the bread actually came from. Right? Where, where did it come from? Was, was Jesus sitting on top of an underground bread factory that was being fed up to him from. I mean, where did the bread come from? Nobody knew. But doesn't this show us that God can provide for us out of resources? that we cannot see or perceive in any way. God has a a treasury, God has places, God has areas, God had ways to provide for us. We cannot see these things at all. They're a complete mystery to us. Now, it's easier for us to have faith when we think we know how God will provide, right? Well, Lord, I I think I know how you're going to provide. And for some reason, it's easier for us to have faith. But doesn't God often provide for us in unexpected and undiscoverable ways? We'll never know how he did it. He just did it. Well, it worked in this situation. Look at verses 20 and 21. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. That's interesting. We call this the feeding of the 5,000. But when you think about it, it was much more than 5,000, was it not? I mean, it could have been as many as 15,000. I mean, look at most church meetings you go to, uh, there's not more men than women, right? So even if you would say that there was an equal number of women to men, that would make 10,000. And if you just had one child for every uh, you know, man there, that would be another, that would be 15,000. This was much more than 5,000, but we just commonly call this event the feeding of the 5,000. And how were they fed? You saw it there in verse 20. They all ate and were filled. Not only was God's provision abundant, they were filled with as much as they wanted. This was an all-you-can-eat feast. And then afterwards, there was more left over than they ever started with. They took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. God did not want the leftovers to go to waste. I think it's wonderful. Here you see God instructing that wise administration be used over his resources. How easy it would have been to say, oh man, you know, if Jesus can do this, Who needs to keep the broken pieces of bread, right? Who needs to keep that half loaf of bread because Jesus can just create all he wants. Just just let the birds eat the half loaf of bread. No, collect it all. And they did, and it filled up 12 baskets. So this is a radical, wonderful miracle. The the prominence of this story, as I said before, recorded in all four Gospels shows That both the Holy Spirit and the early church thought that this story was important, and important as more than just an example of the miraculous power of Jesus. The story shows us several things. It shows us that Jesus could feed the people of God just as Israel was found in the wilderness. You know, in these days, there was a common expectation that the Messiah would restore the provision of manna, that when the Messiah came, manna would be resumed in Israel. And this added to the messianic credentials of Jesus, not that he brought forth manna, because that actually turned out to be a wrong expectation, but what Jesus actually did was miraculously provide bread for this multitude on this occasion. Secondly, It shows us that Jesus had compassion and care for the people of God, even when we might have expected that his patience would be exhausted. Wouldn't you expect that Jesus would just say, look, just get away from me, the crowd can go home as soon as they can. But no, instead, he had compassion and care for the multitude. It also shows us that Jesus chose to work through the hands of the disciples, even when it was not essential to the immediate result. There wasn't anything, let me put it this way, the disciples did not make the bread any better. The disciples did not make the fish any better. But Jesus still wanted them to participate in this miracle. And I think we can also say that this is sort of a preview example. It's It's a short clip of coming attractions of the great messianic banquet that the Messiah will enjoy with his people. This is what we're told. We're told that there's going to be a great wedding feast in heaven, right? One day we're going to sit down to a great big meal with Jesus, and he's going to provide for his people in a wonderful way. We will be part of that, and this particular uh, uh, occasion is sort of a preview of that. And then I could also say one more thing before we go on to the next section. The feeding of the 5,000 also gives us three principles regarding God's provision. First of all, thank God for what you have and use it wisely. That's what Jesus did. Thank God for what you have and use it wisely. Secondly, trust God's unlimited resources. God has unlimited resources. You can trust in God's unlimited resources. Third, don't waste what he gives you. Whatever God gives you, don't waste it. All right, now let's go on here. Starting at verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. The boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. So, after this whole occasion, with the multitudes being fed, it's getting towards nightfall now, the multitudes have had their food, they've collected the uh, the 12 uh, baskets of leftovers from the great feast that they had, and Jesus, what does he do? It says he made his disciples get into the boat. And there's very much really the sense here of Jesus compelling his disciples. Listen, you have to do this. You have to get into the boat and go on ahead of me around the sea. Jesus was going to go up and pray up on the mountain by himself. So he felt that it was important for himself and his followers to leave the area quickly. Now why? Well, I think there's a few reasons. First of all, Jesus felt it was important because he wanted to be alone and pray. Secondly, he did this because he wanted to escape the crowd and get some rest. And then thirdly, he did this because he wanted the crowd to disperse, to go away, so that he could avoid what we might call a messianic uproar. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, again, you would have to go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, because it tells us that the crowd responded to this uh, miraculous feeding with what you might call a rush of messianic expectation. If the disciples shared this enthusiasm, perhaps they sensed that now was the time to openly promote Jesus as Messiah the King, then it was more important forever for Jesus to tell the disciples, Get out of here! Get on the boat and leave, and I'm going to go alone and pray. Might I say, we don't have, and this, I need to look for the right words to say this. This would seem to be the most success that Jesus' ministry has enjoyed up to this point. They are so excited, everybody is pumped. They're like, yes, Jesus, you should be our king. That's exactly what John tells us the multitude was saying after this whole occasion with the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. Well, how did Jesus react to that? He said, yeah, let me hang around these guys who think I should be king. Now we're getting where we want to be. You could see how the disciples would feel that way. What did Jesus say? He said, it's time to leave, and now. So he puts the disciples in the boat. What did Jesus do? he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Jesus was very jealous for time spent alone with his Father. In the midst of his great ministry to other people, he did not, and you could say that he could not, neglect prayer. The, the disciples were going to go off in the boat, Jesus would be up on a hill, he would be in prayer, but the disciples were to make their way across the Sea of Galilee. And then we're told in verse 24 that the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. You may know that the Sea of Galilee is very well known for its sudden storms. And during this storm, Jesus was not in the boat with the disciples. Okay, so there they are. What happens? Verse 25. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, again, let's just get a time perspective here. This is somewhere between three in the morning and six in the morning. So they had been in the boat for a long time, many hours. Matter of fact, the Gospel of Mark tells us that they had been straining and struggling trying to row and trying to guide the boat through the lake. And so they were exhausted, they were frightened. It was a very difficult situation. So, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And maybe I should just stop right there. We, we just sort of take this, well, yeah, Jesus walks on the water. Isn't that what Jesus does? But you have to admit, this is amazing, is it not? Do we have any kind of example of this anywhere previously in the scriptures. We don't, although we do have statements in the Old Testament that says that the Lord God walks upon the seas. But it's not exactly, it's just describing it in the poetic way of God's absolute mastery and majesty over all things. But here, we're just told, in a very matter-of-fact historical account, Jesus is walking on the water, out on the boat. By the way, this wasn't a smooth, glassy sea, right? That would be easy to walk on well i 'm just joking it would not be easy to walk on, but you would think if you were going to walk on water wouldn 't you pick a nice, smooth you know thing of water Jesus is is walking when there 's waves and there's the wind is blowing and it 's storm conditions out there, and Jesus comes to them walking on the water. What a shock this must have been to the disciples, and they were indeed in shock, as it says there it says in verse twenty six that when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, they were frightened, and they cried out for fear, verse 26 tells us. So what does Jesus say? Verse 27, immediately Jesus spoke to them. Now again, I just, I love these little words. He did it immediately. You know, you would almost think that Jesus would almost mess with their head a little bit, you know? Joke around with them. You know, hey, I've got it all under control, but let me have some fun with you guys. You're you're frightened. H- haven't we all done that at some time or another? A friend of ours is frightened by something, and we know everything is safe, but we just sort of joke around with them and, and make them feel the fear because we know everything's okay, but we just sort of do this. Would you expect Jesus might do this in this situation? Well, if he ever did in another situation, he didn't do it now. Immediately, he says, be of good cheer, it is I Do not be afraid. That's because Jesus did not come to the disciples to trouble them or to make them afraid. He immediately spoke to them these comforting words. Do not be afraid. You know, whenever we are afraid, there are two good reasons to put away fear. One reason is maybe the thing that you're afraid about, the problem that you're afraid about, maybe it's not so bad as you think it is, right? You think that the problem is very, very bad. Maybe it's not as bad as you think. The the, the the second reason is that even though the problem may be real and it may be as bad as you think it is, there may be an even greater solution and help right at hand to help you through this problem. Well, you know, wouldn't you say that both of these things were true for the disciples? They felt that they were close to death on this occasion. So their problem was not as bad as they thought it was. And what's more is even though the problem was real to some extent, there was a tremendous solution that they knew nothing about. You think about it. Did they have any reason to believe that Jesus would come to them walking on the water? And when they did see Jesus, did they have any reason to believe that Jesus would instantly calm the storm in the way that he did? I don't think that they had any reason to believe that. And therefore, uh, they were afraid. And here in verse 28, we get into one of the most interesting occasions and fascinating occasions in the whole gospel. Let's look at it together. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. We should just stop right there and notice that Peter actually said something more along the lines of since it is you. The if it is you is not questioning that it's really Jesus. It's more positive in the way that it states it. So it's much more along the lines of, Jesus, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. In other words, Peter wasn't questioning the fact that it was Jesus, but he was saying, Jesus, this is you, and since it is you, I want to come out there with you. Now, to be honest, we have no idea what prompted Peter to ask such a question. But his faith in Jesus was remarkable. I want to go out and walk on the water also. Again, verse 29 now. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Listen, that's one of the most amazing verses you're ever going to find in the Bible. I mean, just to try to picture this. A man seeing Jesus walk on the water in the midst of a storm and he has faith bold enough to climb out of the boat and to put his foot down into the water and put his weight down on there and he can't believe it. He is being supported on the water. Everything this man knew. Now, Peter was a fisherman, was he not? Did he know water pretty well? Did he know this, this great Sea of Galilee pretty well? He did. And for him to think, I can't believe it. I'm walking on the water. And he begins to walk. And you could just picture in his mind, how does someone even walk on the water? You know, what kind of steps do you take? Do you take little steps? Do you take big steps? Do you take bold steps? Do you take cautious steps? Do you have to step up the little swells and down the little waves? And this is how do you even do this? But Peter did it. It's wonderful that it also says in the verse there that he walked towards Jesus. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. This is just wonderful. It's amazing for us to think about this. And then verse 20, verse 30 But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Now, Peter walked on the water, but he feared the wind. Isn't that strange? I mean, look, Peter had been in the midst of that wind for hours. The wind was nothing new. The storm was nothing new. Yet in the very midst of doing something amazing with Jesus, and you might say for Jesus, he's walking towards Jesus. In the midst of all of that, it's the old familiar storm that distracts him and he begins to sink. I just love that wording. Man, I, just, I would just love to see this with my own eyes. Because it says he began to sink. Now, wouldn't you think that walking on the water is pretty much an all or nothing proposition, right? Either you're walking on the water or you're sunk. But here, the impression we get from reading this is that he's going down slowly, right? He's began to sink. I would think that if you lost your faith because of the wind, because of the storm around you, you would just go bloop right under, right? But you just, you'd fall down fast. You'd fall down in the water just like anybody would fall down in the water, right? But it says he's beginning to sink. It's almost like it's quicksand. Jesus, I'm sinking. Help me. And then what happens there? It's so beautiful. Verse 30, he cries out, Lord, save me. One of the shortest and most wonderful prayers in the Bible, right? Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now, even when Peter failed, Jesus was right there to save him. Right? Jesus didn't say, hey, big shot Peter, you want to walk on the water and show all the other disciples how great you are? Well, why don't I just let you swim for a little while here, right? No, Jesus didn't do that. He immediately reached out his hand and he saved him. What a beautiful thought it is. Jesus and Peter walking hand in hand, walking back on the sea, back to the boat. What did Jesus say to Peter? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I want you to notice this. Jesus only said this to Peter after he rescued him, right? I mean, my tendency, if I would be Jesus, and we're thankful that's not the case, right? I'd give him this little lecture on how to have more faith while he's sinking. But Jesus doesn't do that, right? How compassionate Jesus reaches out, grabs hold of him, rescues him, but then he says, Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? It wasn't the violence of the winds. It wasn't the raging of the sea. It wasn't any of those things that made Peter sink and endanger his life. It was the littleness of his faith. One commentator I read said this, that in the original Greek there's only one word for the phrase, O you of little faith. That's all in one word in the ancient Greek. And by that he said that the Lord Jesus virtually addressed Peter by the name of little faith you know peter rock all this stuff right mr rock mr strong now he calls him little faith hey little faith why did you doubt me and here peter shows us the weakness of little faith you know little faith is found in places where we might expect great faith wouldn't you expect peter to have great faith he's the one who got out of the boat But yet at the same time, he had little faith in this occasion. Little faith is often far too eager to see signs, right? I want the sign of walking on the water. I want this. I want a sign to prove something to me. Little faith is often too eager to see signs. Little faith is apt to have too high an opinion of its own power. In other words, I can do it. I can walk on the water. I'll get out there and do it. And then obviously, little faith is too much affected by its surroundings. Little faith could not look unto Jesus alone and say, I want to forget about the wind. I want to forget about the waves. I've seen those things for the last five hours. I don't care about them. I'm looking at Jesus. Little faith looks around too much at the circumstances. But look, let's not be too critical of Peter, right? Because the good news is that little faith can also do tremendous things. Little faith is still true faith, right? Peter had true faith. Now, it was little, but it was true. And little faith will obey the word of Jesus. When Jesus told Peter, get out of the boat, Peter did it. And little faith will struggle to come to Jesus. And little faith will accomplish great things, even just for a time. And little faith will pray when it's in trouble. What did Peter do when he began to sink? He called out to Jesus. And I'll say this too. Little faith is safe because Jesus is near. Now, I wish all of us were great faith, right? Because God can do marvelous things through little faith, but I believe He can do even greater things through great faith. So we should all endeavor to be, we should all want to be people of great faith. But here's the good news God can even do things through little faith. And then Jesus asked the question Why did you doubt? Isn't that a great question? He only asked that Peter the question. He only asked that question to Peter once Peter was safe and sound. Yet at that point, it was an entirely reasonable question to ask. Peter, why did you doubt? Why? Now listen, if you believe something, you want evidence, right? Well, I'll say this. If you're going to doubt something, you should have evidence as well. You should be able to explain your faith, should you not? Well, I'll turn it around on you. You should also be able to explain your doubts. I don't think it's good for a person to have irrational faith, but neither is it good for a person to have irrational doubts. So what are the grounds for your doubts? Now, you can say that in theory... Maybe there are reasons for doubting Jesus and his promises, in theory. Maybe, on some former occasion, you found God to be unfaithful to his promise, right? Maybe God has made a promise to you before, and God has failed. And you know he's failed, and you can prove that God has failed. Well, if that's the case, then maybe you have a reason to doubt God. Or maybe... You have met some old follower of Jesus and they have solemnly told you, listen, I've walked with Jesus for 50 years and I can tell you, you can't trust God. If you ever experienced that, that might be a reason to doubt. Or maybe your problem is such a new problem on the face of the earth, or it is so extremely difficult that it is certain that God cannot help you with such a new problem or such a difficult problem, then you have reason to doubt. Or maybe God has abolished his promises. Maybe God has said, after this date, my promises are no longer valid, and that date was a week ago, right? Sorry, God's promises all have an expiration date on them, and they're all expired. They're no good anymore. Or maybe, maybe you have a reason for doubt because God has changed. He's not the same God that we read about here in the Bible. He's different now. Now, if any of those things that I just named to you were true, then maybe you would have a reason for doubt. But I'm here to tell you, I don't think that a single person here tonight could say that any of those things are true. I don't know if any of you can say that on former occasions, you have found God to be unfaithful to his promise and you can prove to me that God doesn't keep his word. I don't think there's anybody here who has met some old saint who has walked with Jesus and trusted him for 50 years and now will look you in the eye and tell him, don't you trust God, don't you trust Jesus. None of us can say that we have a problem that is so new or so difficult that God can't figure it out. And none of us can say that God has ended or abolished his promises. And none of us can say that God has changed. You see, what I want you to do is think through your doubts. If you have a logical reason for to keep on to your doubts, then keep them. But the bottom line is you don't. You don't have a logical reason. Our doubts are Unreasonable. Here's a quote from Spurgeon. He says, If there be reason for little faith, then there is evidently reason for great confidence. If it is right to trust Jesus at all, why not trust Him completely? Right? Can anybody say, Well, I have reason to trust Jesus a little bit, but not in everything. No! If there's reason to trust Jesus a little bit, Then there is reason to trust him for everything. If you believe, then why doubt? And if you have faith, then why little faith? If you have doubt, then why believe? And if you believe, then why doubt? It's a tremendous question. It's just useful for us to confront our doubts. Was there any good reason for your doubt? Was there any good excuse for it? And then here's the really killer question that hits me. Did any good come from your doubting God? None at all. Why did you doubt? Well, Peter was rescued. They went back into the boat. And then did you notice what it said at the end there, verse 32? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. They moved very quickly from fearing the storm to worshipping Jesus. And this was a very logical reaction, considering the power Jesus showed in walking on the water and the love that he showed in taking care of a sinking Peter. This is the very first time in this gospel that we meet with such a plain declaration from the lips of the disciples, you are the Son of God. There's been uh, references to this idea before, but this is the the most straightforward and plain declaration of that we have seen this far. All right, let's end the chapter now, starting at verse 34. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Well, I, I need to just stop right there at verse 34. The Gospel of John tells us that this crossing over was miraculous. As Jesus got into the boat with them, miraculously the boat was instantly carried over to the other side. It was like what you might call a horizontal rapture. Went from one place to the other place immediately. Now, Gennesaret was a region, it wasn't a town, it was a region on the western shore south of Capernaum. This was a return to the territory of Herod Antipas. So don't think that Jesus was so afraid. Oh, I'm so afraid of what Herod Antipas did to John. I can't do anything. No, 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 no. Jesus only went out of the region for a short time. He came right back. Jesus was not afraid of Herod Antipas. And then what happened there? It says, And when the men of that place recognized him, I'm reading from verse 35, And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Even the hem of Jesus' garment provided an important point of contact for their faith. And I think it's important for us to understand this. Don't think that there was anything magical about Jesus, right? You touch him, you're healed. No, what it was, was that the people really believed that Jesus had healing power, and they really believed that all they had to do was make contact with him to receive that power. And God blessed that, so that even those who touched the hem of his garment were healed. And there are unusual things in the Bible like this. Like the sweat bands of Paul in Acts chapter 19, or the shadow of Peter in Acts chapter 5, Jesus' hem provided a physical object that helped them to believe God for healing at that moment. But now Jesus is back, ministering among the multitudes. Uh, Let me conclude with one last thought here. Look, this chapter is remarkable because it shows us two amazing miracles over the power of nature, right? Any man who can take five loaves and two fishes and use it to feed something like 15,000 people, that's a man with miraculous power over created things, right? Then... You have Jesus walking on the water and enabling Peter to walk on the water as well. That is power. And he could calm the storm as well. These are, are radical miracles over the created order. Now, that is the greatness of the Jesus we serve. I and mean, We just need to remember that. Jesus is not bound, God is not bound by the normal rules of, of life as we see them. He can provide, he can work, he can do his, his, uh, his will among us in completely unexpected ways. Now I don't know about you, but I need to hear that. Because it's easy for me to just look at things the way they are and say, man, Lord, I don't see how this could ever change. I don't see, Lord, how this will ever, ever change. And sometimes I'll feel the Lord stirring my heart to faith in an area like that, but almost don't want to believe it. No, Lord, you can't do that. You won't do that. God is trying to stir my heart to faith, and I'm sort of arguing with Him. Lord, you can't do that. Well, I need chapters like this to remind me. Now, I'm not trying to say God does everything you want Him to do. I'm not saying that God can do everything that you can dream up in your head. But when God prompts you to believe something, when he gives you the gift of faith for something that seems too big or too amazing, you remember the God you serve as reflected in Matthew chapter 14. That that God can work these miracles in our life as well. Well, Father, that's our prayer that we would remember that you are a God who is unlimited in his power and his goodness and his glory. And we're so grateful that you have chosen to use that power and that goodness and that glory for us and on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus. We feel fed by your word. We feel um, the exhilaration of seeing you walk in the midst of the storm. Thank you for being our God. And thank you for ministering unto us. In Jesus' name, amen.